you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Ezra. As Mr. Al mentioned earlier, we'll be finishing up our, 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 our walking through Ezra this morning in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 is where we'll spend our time this morning. <clears throat> Ezra 9 and 10. Before I read the passage, let us pray. Holy Father, you are gracious and you are merciful. We thank you, God, for the way that you work in our lives. We thank you, Father, for the grace that you've extended to each of us, even to be here today. It's my prayer, Lord, that you would take your word this morning as we have sung your praise. And God, that our hearts would be would be fertile soil for your word to take root. And Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts and in our minds. And oh, Father, that we would yield ourselves to you for your glory, that our lives would be surrendered completely to you. And God, that you would be exalted above all things this morning. That we might put away every other thing that would distract us and seek to distract us today. That we would hone in on, on you and on your word. And Lord, that we would hear from you today. I beg of you, Father, that we would hear from you today, God. And Holy Spirit, that you administer to each one of us. And so now, Lord, as we open your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The title of the message this morning is The Bittersweetness of Reconciliation with God. And after I had printed up all of the, the outlines and they had gone out into the worship guide, I began to look at that title and think, well, maybe that's not such a good title. Because if I have to sit there and explain the, the meaning of the title, then maybe it's not such a good title to capture the thought of what we're doing today. But nonetheless, I, I, I think it does capture... Uh, it might sound awkward, the bittersweetness of reconciliation with God, because reconciliation with God is supposed to be sweet, right? I mean, it's supposed to be a, a great thing, and it is a great thing. But it is an allusion to what precedes that time of coming back to Christ. And so reconciliation demands that we would have need to come back into fellowship and relationship with Christ. And so this morning, as we look at Ezra chapters 9 and 10, I pray that it becomes evident what's happening in the lives of the people of Israel, and then that would transfer into our lives, and it would become evident what needs to happen in our lives as the people of God in the 21st century, as a church here in America. J.I. Packer, in his book, Your Father Loves You, wrote of revival, saying, Revival is the visitation of God which brings to life, Christians who have been sleeping, and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. Thence springs a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of heart in repentance, praise, and love with an evangelistic outflow. Each revival movement has its own distinctive features, but the pattern is the same every time. First, God comes. On New Year's Eve in 1739, John Wesley, George Whitfield, and some of their friends held a, a love feast, which became a watch night of prayer to see the new year in. 
And about 3 a.m., Wesley wrote, The power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried for exceeding joy. Many fell to the ground. Revival always begins with a restoration of the sense of the closeness of the Holy One. Second, the gospel is loved as never before. The sense of God's nearness creates an overwhelming awareness of one's own sins and sinfulness. And so the power of the cleansing blood of Christ is greatly appreciated. Then repentance deepens. In the Ulster Revival in 1920, he says, shipyard workers brought back so many stolen tools that new sheds had to be built to house the recovered property. (laughs) Repentance results in restitution. But finally, he says, the Spirit works fast. Godliness multiplies. Christians mature. Converts appear. Paul was at Thessalonica for less than three weeks, but God worked quickly, and Paul left a vibrant church behind him. As we approach Ezra chapter 9 this morning, there is a real sense of a reviving of the people that is happening. Certainly, there's been a reviving of this one man who would come in and who would instigate and, and put in place change. And have one, we have one man in the person of Ezra who, as Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his ordinances and statutes to his people Ezra was a man who was captivated by a holiness of God. He was captivated, captivated by a love for God's word. He was captivated by a sense of living for God. He loved God's word. And then he wanted to practice and live out God's word. And consequently, he wanted to teach God's word. And what we encounter here in Ezra chapter 9 and 10 is the result of God's word being taught for five, four or five months the end of chapter 7 and 8, we see that it was about the fifth month when they were coming into Jerusalem, this third wave of exiles leaving exile in Babylon, coming back to Jerusalem. And so Ezra is the leader, or the second wave, excuse me, Ezra is the leader leading this second group of people back into Jerusalem. And as they're returning there to worship God, this is Ezra the scribe, one who is skilled in law, who begins to teach the word of God and preach the word of God to God's people. Well, as they come back in and we see that it's about the fifth month when they re-enter the land and we see from chapter 10 in here in Ezra that it's about the ninth month when all of this begins to take place. And so for four months, I think what we could insert here and see inserted here if we would flip all the way over to Nehemiah chapter 8. Chronologically, it may not be in the same place, but I think what we see here is is that uh, there was the proclamation and the preaching and the teaching of God's law. In fact, some scholars say that Ezra's reading of the law before the people of, of, of Israel in Nehemiah chapter 8 actually belongs here chronologically. And it would fit well into the scenario between chapters 8 and chapter 9. Nehemiah 8, it occurs in that seventh month, which is between the, the fourth month, or Nehemiah cha- uh, chapter 8, excuse me, it, begins, it, it happens in that seventh month if you read over Nehemiah chapter 8 which is between the, the, the fifth month of Ezra chapter 7. I know this is kind of complicated. Follow me here. Ezra chapter 7 ends in the fifth month. They come back into Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 9 begins or happens in the ninth month. So there, there are four or five months there in between. The math is a little sketchy for me. I know it's simple. 
But, but, but so here's what happens. In that seventh month that we see in Nehemiah chapter 8, there was the preaching of God's Word, the preaching of God's law. And you know what began to happen as God's Word was preached? It began to fall upon ripe ears. They began to hear. They began to hear the Word and the law of God proclaimed and, and exegeted before them. They began to see the connection between Ezra the man of God who had a heart and a passion for the Word of God and Ezra the man of God who wanted to practice and live out the Word of God as he was teaching the Word of God to the people. And so the author is concerned here in Ezra chapter 9 with communicating to us something about God. Communicating something about God and His way and His character with His people. He's concerned to teach us the character of God and and the grace and the mercy of Yahweh as the deliverer and as the covenant provider for the people of Israel. And this is significant for the people of Israel because they were a covenant people. A people set apart to serve this one true God. And he had done many miracles and worked many things and done many wonderful displays of power in their midst throughout their generations. Including bringing them out of captivity in Babylon and giving them favor in the eyes of the pagan kings and the Persians. And so nonetheless, it fits with our understanding of the priest, the scribe Ezra, that he is the one who would preach and teach the law. And that is what is happening in the midst of the people as they sit under the preaching and the teaching of the word. And so that we know that Ezra's mission was to study and to live and to teach God's people God's law. And so we begin in chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 9. And you'll see how that kind of sets it up. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy race is intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. So here are the leaders coming to Ezra telling him this. He's been there for about four months. When I heard about this matter, Ezra says in verse 3, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled from evening uh, until the evening offering. But at the evening offering I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands before the Lord my God and said, O my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now for a brief moment, 
Grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. This morning, I want us to see a couple of implications from chapters 9 and 10. And we'll walk through the, the text as we walk through the message this morning, but the first one that I I want us to see is that tolerating sin has disastrous consequences. Tolerating sin has disastrous consequences. It has disastrous consequences for the people of Israel, and the same still remains true today for us. Tolerating sin in our own lives has disastrous consequences The people of the lands are listed in chapter 9, verse 1. They're ancient enemies of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, we see it's interesting that in five of these eight names that are listed here in Ezra chapter 9 are listed back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. They were all the enemies of God. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians were probably still in the land while there's a bit of ambiguity here. The point is still simple. The point is that these are foreign peoples to the people of Israel. They don't have the same inheritance as the people of Israel have. They do not not serve and worship the same God. Hence, the enemies of God's people are alive and they're threatening the new beginning of this remnant community that's moving back into Jerusalem. They haven't faded away, nor have they passed away, and all the people of, of God must choose this day. It's as if Joshua twenty four fifteen is happening again, where Ezra is confronting them and saying, it's as if you must choose this day whom you will serve. And Ezra, Ezra in essence, is calling the people of God to make a choice. He's saying, will you continue in your sin or will you today put sin away and and return to God? Verse 1 tells us and shows us that this sin encompassed the entire community. It says it in verse 1, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel, the priest and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. It was the lay people It was the priest and it was Levites. It was all of them. This sin was all-encompassing. They had transgressed the Torah, the law of God. They had done it with the sin of intermarriage, which meant the future of the Jews, literally. It meant the future of the Jews as a people of God was at stake. Not only spiritually, but even physically. Verse 2 tells us what they had done. They had taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. And then notice what he says at the end. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. There is unfaithfulness, and it's been it's even come down from the leaders and the princes in the land. Unfaithfulness has, has trickled down from the leadership all the way through the people. 
And I think Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 through 5 kind of gives us a glimpse of, of why this is such a big deal. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5 says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you. Listen to the nations. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars. You shall hew down their asherim and, and burn their graven images with fire. Ezra says, we've sinned against God. We have intermingled. The holy race has, has intermingled with the people of the land and we have taken their daughters to be wives to our sons and we've taken their daughters to be our own wives. And he says, this cannot happen. This mustn't happen. He calls Israel a holy race. I think in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11, we get the idea of why they are a holy race. Listen to what the law of the Lord says. He says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh of king of Egypt. Know therefore then this, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. But hear this. But he repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Now, this is the law that Ezra has been preaching. This is this is the law. This is Torah. Ezra has been standing in the midst of the people proclaiming this word. It's no wonder they've come to a place of realization that they're walking in sin. For the princes in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 9 have come. The leaders have come to Ezra and they have said that we have sinned against God. And they begin to lay out how they had sinned against God if the theme of chapter 7 and 8 in Ezra was the hand of God upon his people, then the theme of chapter 9 and 10 in Ezra is the unfaithfulness of God's people. We see this highlighted in chapter 9, verse 2 at the end there, where he says the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Verse 4 
Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me. Chapter 10, verse 2, we see, he says, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Chapter 10, verse 6, another, another statement about their unfaithfulness. He did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And then in chapter 10, verse 10, unfaithfulness comes up again. Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now in verses 10 and 12 of chapter 9, it really highlights the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. I don't know that we need to go in great detail at this point because I think we probably get it. But in verse 10, he says, Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Ezra says this to God as he's praying. Which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have, the, which have filled it from the end to end, and with their impurity. In verse 12, he says, So now do not give your daughters to their sons. Sound familiar. Sound like Deuteronomy chapter 7. Don't give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, and never seek the peace of their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. In this prayer of confession, Ezra begins to highlight the unfaithfulness of the people of God and how specifically they have transgressed against the laws of God. And then Ezra begins to vocalize the consequences of their unfaithfulness. In verse 13, in spite of their sin and and the 70 years that they've spent in exile, he says God has been merciful and, and graciously restored a remnant. In verses 14 and 15, the reality of their sin begins to sink in or, or it sinks in for Ezra. And it is to understand that the very sin which was the seed of their transgression against God initially has been planted once again and it has caused great despair and grief for Ezra. King Solomon was a premier example of one who had many foreign wives and his heart was led astray. Many of the leaders of the people, of this is a serious deal. God knows that the hearts of his people will be led astray as they go into these foreign marriages. The point is that tolerating sin has disastrous consequences and the people of Israel have been tolerating this sin. I want you to notice how Ezra responds in verses 3 and 4 here in chapter 9. He says, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. I don't know about you, but you pull hair out of your head. Hurts. Or, or what about the beard? I think it's even more sensitive here. The point is, this is, a, this is a ceremonial thing where Ezra is expressing the grievance of God. He's expressing the disapproval of God as he sits here appalled. He sits in silence and he sits stunned. In fact, he, he doesn't say anything 
He's mortified at the thought of repeating the sins of the past. That sin which enslaved the people and caused their exile is the very one that they're now engaging in once again. One commentator writes, these are frenzied acts that one may observe today in those who have been shattered by death or betrayal. Ezra sits appalled as one struck by terror until the evening offering, it says in verse 4. The reality is that the people of Israel were to be separate. They were to be a distinct people. They were to be distinguished from the people of the land. They were to stand out. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 7, they were to be a holy people set apart to God. We see it in the New Testament in 1 Peter that you are a holy race, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a people set apart for His own possession, that we might declare the glory of Him and the excellencies of Him, that we might declare the glorious light of the Gospel. And here for Ezra he sees that they are not distinct or not distinguished from the people of the land. This issue of being separate from the people that that comes up here is one that we can't lose sight of. In fact, the New Testament tells us of the need for us to be separate as well as believers in the world. That we are to be separate. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 speaks of this. When he do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be renewed, right, by the transforming of our minds. Our John chapter fifteen nineteen, the Lord Jesus says to His disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore that world hates you. And in so many more passages that speak of just this distinguished and this distinctness for the people of God. For the New Testament believer to be distinct and and separate. To look altogether different from the world. What does it mean for the believer then to be separate from the world? It means to be distinct. Just like for the people of Israel. It meant that they would be distinguishable from. They would be distinct from the people of the land. It means that as Christians, we're to live with integrity. As Matthew 5.37 says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. It means that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.1, Philippians 1.27, Colossians 1.10, Colossians 2.6, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. It means that we would be a people who walk as disciples of Christ, right? Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wishes to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It means to be a new creation as ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. It means to pattern our lives after the Word of God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6, through 6, where we would love one another. John 13.35, by all this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Listen church, like the Israelites, we must realize that tolerating sin in our lives also has disastrous consequences. 
for them the disastrous consequences that we'll see in a moment in chapter 10 is the place that they end up and the havoc that is wreaked in their lives because of what they have done in transgressing the law of God and going outside of His design for the covenant relationship. They have broken, they have been unfaithful in the covenant relationship. Let me ask us a real pointed question this morning. I realize this is tough. Do we tolerate sin in our own lives? Personally, am I, am I tolerating sin in my own life? I mean, we must recognize that if we tolerate sin in our life, there are disastrous consequences. Personally, as a believer, if there's something that God keeps bringing up and, and bringing up over and over again, guess what? That's sin. And it's time for me to confess it and give it to Him. And if I'm tolerating that in my life, I've got to recognize that somewhere down the road, this is going to bring disastrous consequences for me. And I'm not speaking this to, to suggest that we ought to run from sin because of the disastrous consequences. Instead, we ought to run to Christ and flee from the disastrous consequences and flee from sin and want to be so far away from sin that we're, because we're walking with Christ and because we're walking in the joy-filled life of knowing Christ. And if that's where we are in our Christian walk, we're walking by the Spirit, following God, then guess what? When He reveals those times of sin and reveals those things in our life that are utterly sinful that we are struggling with, we're, we're going to be quick to come to Him and confess those before Him. You know, this is part of that bitterness that I mentioned in the title, The Bitter Sweetness of Reconciliation. It's a bitter pill to swallow when we're confronted by the Word of God in our own lives with sin. When God's Word shows us the sin that's in our life. And then we have to walk through the consequences of breaking free from that sin. And we have to struggle through breaking free from that sin. And that might be some addiction. That might be some way of life. That might be some thing that occurs behind closed doors that we wouldn't want others to see. Whatever that is, I'm quite sure that we can picture it in our own minds. The struggle for us is great. And as believers, listen, we cannot afford, church, we cannot afford to tolerate sin. But the second thing I want us to see this morning is confessing sin is necessary in true repentance which brings about reconciliation. Confessing sin is necessary in true repentance, which brings about reconciliation. We see it in verses 5-15 through 15 to begin with. Ezra realized the whole nation would suffer for the sins of some of the people. So he has this profound sense of personal confession and corporate awareness before the Lord. In verse 5 it says, But at the evening offering I arose from my humiliation, which also could be his fasting, and even with my garment and my robe torn, I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am ashamed. 
I'm ashamed to lift up my face to you, my God. Our iniquities have risen. He uses hyperbole here. Our, our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. And he says, I'm, 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 I'm ashamed to even come into your presence because this sin has continued and continued and continued. And even when we seem to get right, it happens again. I don't know if you've ever been there before, caught up in the cycle of sin. But Ezra comes and comes before God and, and he makes this confession. And you know, as we walk through Ezra and see this prayer even, there, there's this sense of kind of going back and forth between Ezra praying to God and maybe Ezra talking to the people. And we see that kind of fleshed out here in Ezra 5 and 6, verse 7. He begins, seems like kind of, or maybe at least praying so that the people are hearing what he's saying. You see that in verse 7. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests. I want us to notice a few things about Ezra's prayer. Four characteristics that are listed there. One is solidarity. In Ezra's prayer, when he comes before God and begins praying... He doesn't say those people sin, right? Ezra's this passionate man about following God. He has devoted himself to, to study. He set his heart to study, to live, to preach and teach God's word to his people. But notice how he approaches this time of confession. He says, we, our he says it in verse 6 and 7, and I said, oh my God, I'm ashamed in verse 6, and then verse 7, he transitions to this idea of we are guilty, our guilt, our iniquities before you. There is this idea for Ezra of solidarity with God's people where he identifies with God's people in their sin. He's ashamed and he feels the sense of the weight of the people as he intercedes on behalf of the people. And I think this is instructive for us as believers that we would intercede on behalf of others in this way. And it points us, I think, this particular quality of Ezra really points us and, and just kind of magnifies and shines this big Q-beam toward the Lord Jesus Christ as He Himself was one who experienced solidarity with His people. As we see Christ as the great high priest, we know the high priest was one who would identify with the people and Christ Himself did that where He stepped down out of heaven. He identified with His people he lived a life walking in the same flesh that you and I walk in and, and experiencing every temptation that we experience, yet He did it without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 say this, Therefore we do not have a great high priest who has uh, passed through... Our, we do not have a great high priest... I'll just read it. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. I'll start with verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Then he says, therefore... 
Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This, this one Ezra even points us to Christ as the great high priest who has identified with his people in the weakness of our flesh, has taken our sin to the cross, has died on the cross as a substitution for us and in our place, and he has satisfied the wrath of God For all who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will have salvation through Christ and eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is one, here is one who has identified with his people in our weaknesses. But we also see kind of this idea of Ezra. He is identifying with the people and saying that he himself is even guilty and Paul, and it, it points us to the ministry, I think, also of Jesus in John 17, where he begins to intercede on behalf of the disciples as he, he prays for them and prays that his disciples would be kept close to God. Solidarity, we see that in, in Ezra's confession, but we also see his confession itself. His confession in verses 6 and 7, certainly we see that, but he makes no excuse. He, he makes no justification for sin. He simply confesses it before God, right? I'm amazed sometimes how we want to come before God confessing our guilt and our sin, but then also trying to justify why we did what we did. There's none of that before God. That doesn't fly in the, in the presence of God. There's no true repentance in that. He simply confesses it. We see it in verse 10. We, we see it in verse 15. Now our God, verse 10, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. He just lays it out there. God, we've forsaken your commandments. And then verse 15, he says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we've been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. One commentator, McConville, he says this about confession. The tacit argument that God does not need to be told is misleading. Because the business of telling is not a matter of conveying information. As if one could tell anything to the omniscient God. But rather is a spiritual activity. We need to be reminded of our own condition. And the willingness or otherwise to go to our knees with our confession. Says something about how we truly stand with God. I think we would be wise to recognize that need for confession in our own lives. Personally, to come before God and not just acknowledge that we have sin. I think, but to confess that sin and that guilt before the Lord Jesus Christ is important. It's important in our repentance and it's important in our turning away from sin. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The third characteristic we see in Ezra's prayer is this change, this readiness to change. I think it's modeled in verses 8 and 9. There's this readiness to change and also faith in God's mercy. Add to verses 8 and 9, verse 13. So the people, Ezra said, the people are ready to change. Verse 13, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this. 
You know what that is right there? That's God's mercy. You've not given us what we deserve. And you've provided this remnant. That's God's grace. God has been merciful toward us. And He has been gracious. Listen, could I just remind us that God is merciful to us daily and not giving us what we deserve, but very gracious also toward us daily and forgiving us of our sin, allowing us to come into His presence and extending His salvation to us. And so we notice a few things about His prayer. There's not a request made in in His prayer in chapter 9 here. There's no request made. He simply confesses sin And as a people, he reflects on the significance of that sin. I think inherent in this confession is the desire for forgiveness and desire to be restored and reconciled in covenant relationship. So confessing sin is necessary in true repentance, which brings about reconciliation. And so I want us to see something about true repentance here. And that is true repentance is marked by a change of direction. I think that's what we see in the lives of the people of Israel. And we look in chapter 10 and see true repentance is is marked by a change of direction. In verse 1 it says, Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men and women and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept Bitterly. That is, there was a brokenness among the people of Israel. They wept bitterly. And in verse 3, it says, So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. And so they said, Arise, this is your matter. It's your responsibility, Ezra. But we'll be with you. So be courageous and act. So Ezra rose up and he, he made the leading priests and Levites and the people come and he, he spoke this proposal that... They brought forth this proposal, came from the people. He spoke it. They all agreed. They all agreed to live it out. Look in verse 12. It says, Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right, as you have said, so it is our duty. What is this thing that they are about to do? They're about to put away the foreign wives that they have married and the children. They're about to divorce these foreign wives that they have taken in violation of God's commandment. And unfortunately, as we look at chapter 10, we encounter a hard passage. And in it, I think we get a firsthand view of the devastating consequences of sin when it's tolerated among the people of God. When we continue in sin, lives are turned upside down, and that's just what happens here in chapter 10. To be accurate, we need to understand that we can't read today's culture back into the biblical narrative or else we'll superimpose really the difficulties that single moms today often face. It's not the same. There's not an equivalent there. Family structure was much different then than now. Families would be able to assimilate a mother and a child or children back into their fold in a much different way than today. So we can't look at it in the same light as 21st century occurrence. However, we also must realize that this is still a very, very difficult thing. And so we don't want to be a callous in our approach either. 
But perhaps before we go any further, we should state what isn't occurring in this passage. What isn't occurring here in this text. God is not permitting divorce as a way of life. Instead, the real issue here is the holiness of God's people as being separated to Him and from the people of the land. What's interesting is in verse 3, there's a strange ending to the verse. It says in verse 3 of chapter 10, And let it be done according to the law. Well, the problem was the law makes no provision for putting away a foreign wife. And the reason is because there was never a provision for taking a foreign wife. In fact, it was just the opposite. The law prohibited taking of foreign wives. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 3 and what we see in chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 here in Ezra. And so the people were in direct violation of God's law. Before we jump too far ahead here, we, we need to reconcile, I think, a couple of things with our New Testament understanding and teaching on, on, on God's view of marriage and divorce. The New Testament teaches this truth about being separate from the world and does apply it to marriage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That is, we are wise to recognize in God's good design that He desires that believers would have marriage with other believers That's not always the way that things happen. There are believers who are married to unbelievers and consequently there are struggles, I think, that that ensue if one is walking closely with the Lord and and the other is not wanting to walk with the Lord. There will be inevitably there will there will be a clash there. There will be a difference of opinion, a difference of view, a difference of philosophy in life, a difference in allegiance for one would be yoked together with Christ himself and the other would be yoked together with the world. There's just a different allegiance Paul recognizes that happening as well. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul dealing with the issue of believers being married to unbelievers, he he speaks to this. He says, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Him for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. We have to understand the reconciling of these passages here. We've got two very different things occurring. In the Old Testament, we've got the people of Israel living in covenant faithfulness to God as a people who are called and given the express law to be holy and to be separate and to be a people set apart and said, do not marry. 
or intermingle with the people of the land because they're going to take you away. And while they'll take you away from your devotion to following me and and while that temptation is certainly present in the New Testament, Paul tells us how to live and how to honor God in our marriage if we find ourselves even in those situations where we would we would seek God and pray to God and live faithfully serving God. So we have to understand for the people of Israel that faith in God was equivalent to covenant faithfulness, not unfaithfulness, but faithfulness. And so really what we see happening here in Ezra chapter 10 is this. There is this harsh and depraved reality so that the outcome that is there, the possible two potential outcomes, really are the choosing of two of the lesser, lesser of two evils. Any move that the people of Israel make, because, hear this out, because they have tolerated sin in their midst, there are disastrous consequences. And now seemingly any move that they make because they have tolerated sin ends in a bad outcome. This is the devastating effects of sin in our fallen world. For the people of Israel to, to divorce and separate from foreign women would be tragic for the families and sinful For Scripture is clear that God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. But to remain married to foreign women would be in violation of God's law and the greater violation, therefore sinning and inviting God's wrath upon the people of Israel. The tragedy of verse 10 is not that God is unjust or unmerciful. Instead, it's that as people, we often tolerate sin to the point that the consequences are disastrous and wreak havoc in our lives. May we as a people of God recognize the need to put away sin and not to tolerate sin. True repentance True repentance is marked by a change of direction. The people of Israel embrace this and they say, we will do this. We will do this. We'll put this in place. And true repentance is also marked by a change of of heart. True repentance brings about reconciliation. In verse 2, look at what's said of chapter 10. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. In verses 16 and 17, they carry out this command, but the exiles did so, and Ezra the priest selected men who were the heads of the father's households for each of their father's households, all of them by name, so they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. They had followed through with their confession. They took action and they were restored in relation with their God. The point of the passage is this. They had arrived at a place of sin and they had disobeyed a foundational law of God. And they had followed the same sinful pattern that ultimately led them into captivity, into exile. 
And as I thought on this and I reflected on the corporate prayer of Ezra as he prayed for the people, and as the people themselves came around Ezra, we see it different places in the text, and they themselves wept bitterly. I, I was thinking, is there a corporate sin today in the church that we're missing? Is there one that we as a church ought to be coming and saying, God, we confess before you. Our Lord, we confess our sin is great. And one that I think about is the sin of apathy. The sin of just not caring. Going on and on with our daily lives. The humdrum and the same day in, day out routines. And yet, all the while, not really pursuing a vibrant relationship with God. All the while tolerating sin in our own heart and saying, you know, it's okay, it's a small one. Yeah, you know what? God's grace covers me in that. But that is not how God desires that we would walk with Him. That is not how God desires that we would live. One writer said, although the apathy of some Christians and the wickedness of society are discouraging, we should pray and remain confident. William Wilberforce was a great Christian philanthropist and vigorous opponent of the slave trade in England during the 1800s. As he surveyed the terrible moral and spiritual climate of his day, he did not lose hope. He wrote, My own solid hopes for the well-being of my country depend not so much on her navies or armies, nor on the wisdom of her rulers, nor on the spirit of her people, as on the persuasion that she still contains many who love and obey the gospel of Christ. I believe that their prayers may yet prevail, he said. Within a few years after he made this statement, the country he loved experienced one of the greatest revivals in modern times, bringing salvation to thousands and producing widespread social changes. Listen, church, we, we ought to come before God. We need to come before God, crying out on behalf of the church here in the Western world, in America, begging God for forgiveness in spite of the apathy that we have evidenced. The bittersweetness of reconciliation with God is a tough pill to swallow. Acknowledging our sin in our own life is a battle that certainly rages within. And letting it go is, is as difficult almost as acknowledging it because we realize that it's keeping us from walking in the joy of Christ and walking in the Christ-filled life. But it's sweet at the same time because when we surrender and when we let go, we have freedom and we recover the joy of walking with Christ. And in so doing, we experience brokenness and we experience a rejoicing. We move from brokenness into rejoicing. We move from walking and, 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 and being humble before God to rejoicing and praising Him in His presence. So I want to close by saying this this morning. I, I know this passage has been somewhat heavy. It was heavy for me. As I had to consider and examine my own heart and my own mind. And struggle through making sure and not wanting to harbor and, 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 and tolerate sin in my life. I think it would be unjust before our gracious God to leave us cut by the word without any ointment and grace to... To cover the wounds. So I want you to know this. That where sin increases. The grace of God abounds all the more. And when we confess our sin before God. 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Israelites experienced the merciful and faithful hand of God as they were reconciled to Him. And so this morning, I want to encourage us with this word. Let us submit ourselves to God. Let us resist the devil. And as we do, he'll flee from us. Let us draw near to God. And the promise of God's word is that he will draw near to you. Hear me out this morning, friend. Believer. Let us draw near to God this morning. Let us experience a time of refreshing that he can bring. But let us also not look past the time of crying out before him. Confessing our need before him. Let us pray. Father. As we come before you this morning. Perhaps our prayer needs to be God teach us even how to cry out in repentance on behalf of our nation, on behalf of the believers in the church in this nation. For spiritual apathy that is so pervasive across this land. I pray, God, for our hearts as cross point, as a people who want to worship and serve you and walk faithfully after you. God, that you would you would exhort us and encourage us and that you would draw us to yourself. And God, that you would teach us what it is to be this faithful covenant community who follow hard after you and, and that we would not be tolerating sin in, in our own lives or in our midst, but God, that you would help us and strengthen us according to your will and the way that you work in our lives, that you would strengthen us, Father, just to draw near, to depend upon you and to follow you and to carry out these things which you have even convicted us in our own lives. So this morning, as each of us spends time Just considering these things before you, I pray that you would give us clarity of mind. Give us understanding in the task that you have called us to, Father. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand.